0: the jericho network on westwood one the following program is presented by the jericho network in association with podcast one
1: podcast one presents rock talk rock talk with mitch lafond all the rockers. all the stories this is incredible now Now. here's your host respected rock journalist mitch lafond
2: Welcome to Rock Talk, and I am your host, Mitch Lafana. Joining me on this edition from the band Steel Panther, it is drummer Stixadenia. We talk about all kinds of stuff, including their recent re-release of Lower the Bar. This time it is the Bitchin' Edition, or the Double Bitchin' Edition, if you ask Stix. It is a, a fun, fun interview, in fact, because... Um, you know, the guys have to stay in character when they do their, their interviews. Shh, shh, they're in character. Shh, don't, don't tell anybody. And, of course, uh, digging into their past, you sort of is frowned upon. So what we did here was a little ge- a little game of, uh, you know, where is Waldo or spot the whatever. Uh, if you know the band's history, you know where they came from, you're going to enjoy this because there's a lot of little drops and references to other bands and other configurations and what they did in the past and their names and this and that. Absolutely fantastic, and uh, you'll see. Uh, great fun. After that, uh, after that first interview, I come back with Brian Vollmer. Uh, some of you might know the band Helix. They have been around since 1974. Can you believe it? 1974 or so helix was formed of course they uh, rose to prominence in the 80s with rock you a song that certainly got a lot of airplay or video play up on uh, much music in canada and i'm assuming assuming because i didn't live in the states that it probably got some uh, play on headbangers ball or something like that anyway brian is back helix is still around and he's got a new solo album called get your hands dirty uh, get Your Hands Dirty, and uh, we talk about that. We go also into the band's history, and we talk about Christmas albums, and just all kinds of stuff. Uh, a lot of content there with uh, with Brian. After Brian, I have got a third and final interview. It is Rehab Bob Forrest from Aloe House. Uh, he, of course, is better known for having been on celebrity rehab with dr drew so check that out a lot of great content just before i get to that as we again approach the holiday season let me give you a few suggestions for things to check out either for yourself or for the rock fan uh in your life a few things so uh, let me start off here with black sabbath the end uh, recorded live in Birmingham on February fourth, two thousand seventeen. It is a great, uh, great package. A DVD, CD, and, and what's really fun is the CD has something here called the um, Angelic Sessions, where they redo the Wizard, Wicked World, Sweet Leaf, Tomorrow's Dream, and Changes, and just a just a fun, fun package. I, you know, I um, I was it was actually sent to me. Um, What I really enjoy, and again, I'll say it again, was was the angelic sessions because I just love throwing stuff into the uh, iTunes and then making, creating playlists. And so I took these songs and I reconfigured them into other playlists with other Sabbath songs, and they just, just a lot of fun. So Black Sabbath, The End, uh, recorded live in Birmingham on February 4th, 2017. While we're speaking of live stuff, Iron Maiden, The Book of Souls, live chapter, uh, a new. Double CD release here with uh, all the songs you're expecting, plus a lot of the new ones. Uh, You've got on here Trooper, Power Slave, uh, The Red and the Black, Children of the Damned, and all kinds of great stuff. And, and since we're talking Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson's new autobiography, uh, which says, uh, may contain flying heavy metal, and of course a little button or a little picture over his finger there saying, what does this button do? Just a great, great read. Um, the reason I have all this Iron Maiden stuff is that there is rumor or talk of a Bruce Dickinson interview coming to the show. Um, it had been set up, and then it got postponed, and it's been rescheduled. And, and we'll see. At some point, um, there could be a Bruce Dickinson interview on uh, Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. It hasn't been recorded. It's been postponed. But we'll see. Uh anyway, I got I've got all this Iron Maiden stuff. It's always a pleasure to get Iron Maiden stuff and to check that out. And last but not least, um uh, Whitesnake, one of my absolute absolute favorite bands. You know, it's funny, uh, back in the 80s and you know, 70s Kiss ruled my world and 80s Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and Def Leppard ruled my world and the Scorpions and White Snake I liked and, and I listened to and I had their albums but it's really been in like the last decade where just White Snake and Scorpions have risen to the top and you know you look at my iPhone here I've got a a 250 song White Snake playlist in, in it right now um, I have a scorpions playlist which i forget how how many songs i'm at i think i'm at 230 or something like that on the scorpions if not 250 as well i think actually they're both at 250 but those songs and, and those two bands they just don't leave my phone they those playlists sit there and as i walk the dog or as i drive in the car i will play them and wherever i get to i stop and the next time i go out I start right up. So if I get to song whatever, 51, while the next time I go to song 52, and I keep going until I play the entire set list through and um, playlist through, just, you gotta love that stuff. By the way, since you're listening, are there any bands out there that you have a playlist or an album that just sits in your iPhone or music player or whatever you call it, uh, you know, your Samsung or whatever, that you just leave in there and... At some point, whether you're walking the dog or you're having a bad day or you're having a great day or something, you just go, man, I'm, I'm pulling these guys out. Because I want to know. I'm curious. Uh, t- uh, tweet that off to at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. Uh, let me know if there's any playlist that sort of sits in your uh, music catalog that you just never delete or you never remove. Uh, and the other ones, by the way, I have in there are my European bands, which I love. Well, then again, uh, I guess they're all European bands when you think about it. Whitesnakes, European, Scorpions, European. I have got a Thunder playlist in there. It's, 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 it's not that good. It's only 160 songs. i I, I got to get my, my acting gear and throw a few more in there. Uh, in fact, it's two playlists. It's one playlist of 100 songs of all the greatest songs, and then a 60-song all-acoustic Thunder playlist. So I've got to up my game and get those up there. And I've also got Gothard uh, gothard. Every time I say the word gothard, somebody will inevitably correct me and say, that's not how you say it, but whatever. Listen, I'm saying the name of the band. I can, the other option is that I don't say them at all. Um, but a uh, Swiss band with, uh, 16 number one albums in Switzerland, which for some reason, nobody knows about, knows about them in North America, but, um, they, uh, they have a 100 song playlist that sits in my phone, uh, in infinitum, or in infinity, or whatever. Uh, So, you know, and by the way, um, coming up, I'm going to have an episode uh, with... It's going to be my all-European episode. Uh, Ian Hoagland, drummer for Europe, is going to be featured on that. Leo Leone of the band Gothard, who's got a new band called Corleone, is going to be on that. Now, guitar guys, people who love guitar, play guitar, all that stuff, you have got to check out Leo, L-E-O, Leone, L-E-O-N-I, from Gothard. He is right up there with anybody you want to throw at me. George Lynch, um, Zach Wild, um, just, just whoever. Throw a name at me, and Leo can match them note for note. He is a fantastic guitarist, and you know, Year after year and day after day, month after month, somebody inevitably on Facebook or on Twitter will say, who's an underrated guitarist? Name an underrated guitarist. And there are always two that I'm going to continuously answer to those quizzes on, on social media. One is Leo Leone of uh, Gothard, and the other one is Luke Morley of Thunder, Um that's fantastic stuff, and, and, and for those of you who don't know Gothard, and you'll get to hear about them on that European episode that, that'll feature Leo. But I would say, hmm, how can I describe them? Really, really strong, hard, melodic rock band. If you liked anything that Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Bryan Adams, uh, even Foreigner for that matter, did in the 1980s gothards for you the the vocals soaring steve lee the vocalist who unfortunately passed away absolutely can can you know sings with the heavyweights he, he can go blow for blow with any heavyweight singer and, and anyway anyway enough about that uh, let's get on to our first interview today from steel panther it is a drummer stick sidenia just have a chance to look at the band's history or look at his history before you listen to the interview, if you can, because there was a lot of slyness here and a lot of double entendres and a lot of little notes, uh, you know, little nuggets thrown in there. So if you're a fan of the band and you know their history, you know where they came from, you know what Michael Starr's real name is, you know what other bands he sang with, you know, um, you know, uh, Satchel, uh, what band he played in before, etc., etc., etc. Just listen for that because it's all thrown in there, but not out in the open. It's all backwards and undercut and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, anyway here it is. From Party Band and Lower the Bitching Edition is their recent release. It is drummer Stick Zidinya. Cheers. We are speaking with Steel Panther drummer, Stick Zidinha, Lower the Bar, Bitchin' Edition, out now. Uh, pleasure to speak with
0: you, uh, Sticks. How are you? Mitch, I am fantastic. How are you? Good,
2: good. Doing very good. Now, you just did something that was very, uh, very, very exciting to me. You were on the KISS cruise. Um That must have been sort of, I mean, I know that Steel Panther is used to being on boats with hot chicks and stuff. And this time it was sort of old balding men, but well, I guess for a drummer, that must've been perfect. But, but how was the, uh, the, the boat and the tour for you or, or that
0: show for you? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, It was, we had a lot of fun. Um, You know, it's look, cruising is very specific. It's a very specific thing to do. And you kind of got to be, you know, ready to be on a floating Alcatraz and be a be willing to walk in the same loop for five days because you ain't going anywhere else. So once you get over that, uh, honestly, my favorite part about the the cruise was hanging out with the, the other bands and we got to get to know the guys in Extreme pretty good. Um, I got to hang out with Tommy and Eric and Kiss, who uh, who were buddies of mine uh, from before. And it was really, uh, it was really cool, man. I, I truly enjoyed that kind of camaraderie. That was, the, that was a highlight for me.
2: I can imagine. Now, I would also imagine that a cruise like that is just nothing but cocaine and caviar, right?
0: Well, no, it's not caviar. It's just straight cocaine, Mitch, because it's hard to, it's hard to smuggle fish eggs onto the boat, and they don't serve caviar on on the Kiss Cruise. They serve carrot cake.
2: Good old carrot cake. Um by the way, when when you got over to uh, to Mexico on this cruise, any chance that you saw on the docks there or on the shore any of those wonderful thorn birds cuz I hear they're just absolutely marvelous to see live.
0: Uh, you know what? I I saw a couple of them actually. I think they were on the boat and we did see them. I was too nervous to go get an autograph, uh but they were there. Imagine. So
2: so talk to me about Lower the Bar the bitching edition. I'm assuming that uh, it's since it's bitching, it's got to be a lot better than the sort of regular lower bar edition.
0: Well, you know, that's something that I fought for is actually because I feel like our, our original lower the bar version is the bitching edition. And I was really lobbying for the bitching edition to be called the double bitching edition. But I think that Cobalt had a problem with the wording because we pay per letter. So they're like, look, it's going to cost too much to call it the double in edition. And so now it's just the in edition. But to me, emotionally, when I listen to it, it sounds double bitching to me.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. And now you have the, uh, the video wasting too much time, which you put together, which in itself is remarkable because who knew drummers could do anything other than just drum. Uh, but you have the Stone Sour guys in there. Talk to me about that and... And what is like to have Corey Taylor in and around you all day long?
0: Well, you know, Corey is um, what we like to call in the industry uh, a firecracker. He's um, he's he's fantastic. He was he was awesome. All the guys in Stone South, You know, we went out and we toured with them not long after we uh, put that video out. And um, you know, for those guys to come in and sh- and fly in and shoot that video uh with us. It was it was a great day, man. You know, when you shoot videos you you gotta run a tight schedule and I killed it by the way. And the video I think speaks for itself and I'd like to do more of them. But you know, I think that uh I think it turned out killer. They they hammered the performance, they killed it and, and it was it was a great day.
2: Yeah, it really was. And, and also, there's a video on that or a song on the album, uh, She's Tight, that has uh, Robin Zandra of Cheap Trick on there, originally on one of their albums. Uh, talk to me about working with Robin, because I can see a band like Steel Panther. You must have been fans growing up of, of Cheap Trick. And then just to have The Voice uh, there with you. Uh, just talk to me about choosing that
0: song and then having Robin come in and, and be part of it. Um, well, you know, we're we are all fans. We're all actual legit fans of of Cheap Trick and you know, we wanted to do to do something for for our fans. We wanted to do something for, you know, to to pay respect to, to bands that influenced us. And uh, you know, to have the voice, I mean he's the voice. So it was it's an honor. It was it was an honor for us and it's something that I'll have forever, you know, to be able to say, Hey, we worked with Robin Alexander, and that—that's just pretty cool. Yeah, it
2: really is. Um, what what, in particular, made you sort of choose the "She's Tight" song? Is it just sort of the lyrical content, or the fact that just any cheap trick song is awesome?
0: Any, you know, it was it it was um, a toss up uh, between "She's Tight." Um, what was the other one? I think "He's a Whore" was was in contention, um, and we, you know, I, I, uh uh. I'm trying to think of the other one. There was one more, but she's tight. We felt really fit. Steel Panther lyrically. And it was right in line with, you know, what we do because we're, we're Mitch. I don't know if you know, but we're really dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit, right? We're really a little dirty.
2: (laughs) Um, Talk to me about Satchel uh, in terms of guitarist. Let's talk band members. Satchel, absolute, absolute fantastic talent. In fact, you know, I, I had this this fantasy that he was on stage with Rob Halford and was and just kicking it. I mean, imagine how great that would be. But he's with you guys. Uh, just talk to me
0: about how I awesome can't even he is. imagine that. Uh,
2: could you imagine what that would sound like? I mean, that would just be
0: mind blowing, wouldn't it? I imagine it would sound pretty heavy. Yeah, pretty cool. Um,
2: but listen, uh, you don't have to fight for him. He's with you. Uh, talk to me about Satchel and his talents and what he brings to the band.
0: Well, first of all, I want you to know that I appreciate how. Lie, you are. Thank you. Secondly, uh I'm going to talk to you about Satchel right now, and I'm going to tell you the guy's a freak show. I mean, you know, when you're teaching at GIT when you're 17, you're no joke. And you know, he's he's just he's up there with, in my opinion, he's up there with with the greats. And when I say greats, I mean like CC C. DeVille, and I mean like you know uh the guy from Twisted Sister. So he's up there with those guys. And, you know, in all seriousness, uh, there's no guitar player I'd want to be in a band with. The guy comes up with riffs for days, and he's a fantastic songwriter, and he just shreds. The dude shreds. So if you do get a chance to come see us play, bring tortillas, bring uh, taco sauce, bring cheese, bring lettuce, because he's going to shred.
2: And he's gonna be awesome at it. Now, uh Michael Starr, lead singer. Um, you uh you yeah. found him uh you found him working at a Ralph's and that was just great that you pulled him out of that situation. Uh talk to me about uh Michael and his vocal abilities. I mean he, he reminds me of a very, very young David Lee Roth.
0: Yeah, you know, I've heard those comparisons. I don't see it, but look, you know, everyone's got their opinions. I think that uh, Michael Starr, God, man, it's funny when you ask me to talk about my band members like this, I'm like, man, what? It sounds like I'm putting together the ultimate band and I'm in it. And that's pretty cool. Like, I don't know a lot of guys who, who could talk about the band members. And go, We have the ultimate band. Like I've got the best guitar player. I've got the best singer. I've got the best looking bass player. It's just, I mean, it's, it's a it's a cornucopia of epicness. I mean, that, that should be the, the the title of our our greatest hits record.
2: Well, in fact, that should be. Um, and and you're right, Lex Lexy, absolutely the best looking uh, bass player. And if he actually learned how to play, he would be fantastic. I mean, he would
0: be just be wonderful. could, <laughs> yeah. could, could you imagine? I'm I'm actually not kidding. Could you imagine if he played as good as he looks? I know that <laughs> it, it would be like. Jaco Pistorius and Rudy Sarzo all rolled up into one human being and Farrah Fawcett.
2: Well, in fact, you wouldn't even need the other band members. He could just do an entire album by himself and then just do a bass solo for two hours, which would be stunning.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, this is where you and I are going to philosophically disagree because nobody wants to hear a bass solo for two hours, Mitch.
2: Well, in fact, I would say nobody wants to hear a bass solo even for three minutes. Uh, but hey, Gene insists, <laughs> right? I think you're
0: right. Unless you know, what? unless you're Michael Anthony.
2: Well, yeah, but Michael Anthony, he can sort of do whatever he wants. And uh, by the way, don't you feel that he deserves a spot in Van Halen? Isn't shouldn't he be in that band right now?
0: Yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> yes, yes, he should. Like it's just ridiculous. It's, it's yeah, he should. That's the short answer.
2: Talk to me about the upcoming European tour. You're heading off there, uh, Dublin, Belfast, Glasgow, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of great dates in January, February. Um, what are you going to bring to the European audiences?
0: Well, we're going to bring our pants, that's for sure. We're bringing pants. We're not going to go pantsless. That's crazy. Uh, I don't know why you would even suggest that we would not bring pants. Um, but now that we're past that, I feel like what we're really going to do is come in there, we're going to come in hot, we're going to play steel panther songs and we're going to put on the kind of show that I think a lot of bands are missing nowadays cuz you know, I have a philosophy on, you know, bands of yesterday versus bands of today and I feel like bands of today, a lot of them, they record in their li- their bedrooms, they record in their, you know, and then they they write these songs and they may be great songs and they record them. They get a deal. They put the record out, and then okay, all right, wait. Now we got to go perform them and entertain people at the same time. And they don't have that skill set that uh, a band like Steel Panther has, a band like Judith, like Judas Judith Priest, like an amazing live band, because right. they've had to do it. We, we've had to do it. We we grew up playing shows and entertaining people, and I I feel like that's missing from a lot of. Uh, a lot of bands. Uh, I just don't think they have the experience to go out and throw it down like uh, like we do, for instance. Um, and I think that that's what we're going to be able to bring to Europe. And I think we're going to come in hot and just kill it and entertain the hell out of those people. Yeah, I bet.
2: And, uh, and uh, you know, whether you wear pants or not, it's all the same to me. Um, Judas Priest, you just mentioned, you did tour with them a while back. What was that experience like And and... Was Rob sort of uh, on Satchel's back all day long saying, Hey, buddy, got room for you?
0: No, he, didn't, you know what, that would have been awkward, uh, because Rob is pretty tall and Satchel is not very tall. So I think he would have had a hard time with, with Rob on his back. Um, it would have really, it would have looked funny, but I feel like, um, you know, I feel like they have a great relationship. Rob was nothing but a sweetheart to us. All the guys in the band, all the, all the guys in Judas Priest were, like it was one of those lifetime experiences, honestly, for me and the other guys in Seal Panther to be able to go out with a band like Judas Priest, you know, that's a, that's a legendary heavy metal band. And they treated us, they treated us like we were peers. And that's pretty cool. I can
2: imagine. Now, uh, the band Steel Panther, obviously four good-looking guys. Is it, is it tough back there? Are you sort of all competing for the same women? Are you having a hard time? Is the band going to stay together? Are you are you sort of set for the next few years, or are you thinking of, you know, I mean, will Michael Starr just sort of run off and join L.A. Guns at some point? I mean, that would just be, be wasted talent, if you ask me, but um, uh,
0: yeah. I feel I feel like Michael Starr joining LA Guns would be something that no one would ever... Like, That that's so far-fetched from reality that I don't even know how that came out of your mouth, Mitch. But I will tell you that when it comes to competing for chicks, uh, we all like different chicks. And that's one of the main reasons why we stay together. Because you don't know, like, when you get in a band with a dude, you don't know if you're going to be like, we both like super duper skinny blondes and we both like super duper fat brunettes but in our band everybody likes a different type of chick and it seems as though we're so different uh that chi- you know different chicks have a they specifically like certain guys so it really is the best of of a of a great situation
2: yeah it really is and, and you're right uh, like i said Michael Starr LA Guns that just would have been totally totally wasted um that's crazy. I know, right? Uh, in terms of Steel Panthers' next new album, where are we in, in that process? In terms of writing, and uh, you know, putting together sort of the next new one.
0: Well, I can tell you this: we, it's being it's being discussed. Like, what kind of record do we want to make? And you know, these are things that, that bands. These are discussions that I don't know that bands have. Like, hey, what do we want to do next? We put out four studio albums and one live acoustic record and one live DVD. And we're like, do we want to do a record uh, where we talk about pussy and drugs and partying and chicks and, and, and heavy metal? Do we want to do that? Or do we want to do a Steel Panther Kids album? I don't know. Or a Christmas Either album. Are heaven. Or a uh, Christmas album or, you know, something, something that people are like, I mean, obviously whatever we do, it's going to be heavy metal because that's, that's how we roll. But, you know, there's, there's, there's an argument for something, you know, fresh and different. And maybe, maybe we do do some life lesson songs for kids in the killer heavy metal genre, you know? I don't know. It's it's worth talking about.
2: It is. Would you consider doing a more sort of dark, brooding, introspective kind of album where you you talk about the problems of the world? No. But but don't you want to use the fame of Steel Panther to to, to solve you know world hunger? No. Oh. All right. Um, you have obviously been on tour for many years. You've seen a million faces. You've rocked them all. You've ridden in on a Steel Panther. Um, where do we go from here in terms of uh, other than the you know European tour? Where do we see you again in North America in two thousand
3: eighteen?
0: Oh, uh, you know what? That's a good question. I I am sure. I I can guarantee you that we will be playing in North America in two thousand eighteen. And you know what? What I'd like to do. This is an idea that I just came up with with you, Mitch. So maybe you can help me with it. But maybe it's literally a circle tour of the states. like we start in california we start in la we go up to oregon and seattle and we go across idaho you know montana minnesota and then we go down, da- you know down under the lakes michigan indiana you know then we go over up into the right top corner shoot all the way down the coast the carolinas you know, all that, the Virginia Carolinas, all that down into Florida. Then we go to the tip of Florida. Then we roll back across Atlanta. We go to Missouri. We go to, uh, you know, uh, Louisiana. Then we hit Texas. Texas is huge. Then we come back through Arizona, Nevada, and then we fill in the middle in a circular pattern like a giant cinnamon roll, cinnamon bun. Right. So, I'd like to see us do Cinnamon Bun 2018 tour.
2: Now, is that a tour that I could bring my wife to? Would she be safe at a Steel Panther show, or would I be going home alone?
0: It, I mean, it depends on what your definition of safe is. If you're asking if we're going to use a condom, probably not, Mitch. Okay, so that's
2: that's that's, that's something to look out uh, look out for. Now, um, just quickly, would you say that you're the leader of this band? Yes. Yeah, you see, there you go. Um, great pleasure, by the way, talking to you. So, uh, lower the bar, bitching edition, out now. European tour starts in January. Sticks. A great, great pleasure uh, talking to
0: you today, Mitch. Honestly, I'm going to say this, and I mean this wholeheartedly. That was a great interview.
2: Thank you, thank you. And uh, yeah. you know, it's it's almost like um, where's Waldo? You get to uh, find all the little chunky parts in there.
0: <laughs> You know? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you, sir.
2: It's been a great pleasure, and I certainly hope to see you in uh, Montreal in 2018.
0: Awesome, man. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it, dude. Cheers.
2: Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a TrueCar certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car. You want. Next, TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car that you are looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 TrueCar Certified Dealers nationwide. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. TrueCar users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they are connected with a True Car Certified Dealer. TrueCar users save an average of over 3000 dollars off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available. In all states.
1: The Serial Killer Podcast, hosted by me, Thomas Weiborg Thun, is the podcast dedicated to serial killers who they were, what they did, and how. Join me as I sit down bi weekly to bring you, dear listener, into the dark land of serial murder and psychopathy. The show goes into graphic detail on the most infamous and lesser-known serial killers from around the world, with each episode covering one unique serial killer. So far, the show has covered serial killer superstars, such as BTK, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the Yorkshire Ripper, and lesser-known killers, such as Elias Abuelazan and Anatoly Onoprienko be advised this show is not for children as it takes you deep into the twisted world of ultimate evil you can find me exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new podcast one app also don't forget to rate and review on apple podcasts you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk
2: Certainly hope you enjoyed that interview with Stick Zadinia of Steel Panther. I know, I certainly enjoyed it, and it was, it was great fun sort of s- stitching that together, for the lack of a, a better word. Let's, uh, let's move on here to our second interview with Brian Vollmer. Uh, just before that, though, uh, at the top of the show, I was mentioning a European uh, edition or episode coming up with uh, Ian of Europe. Uh, Leo of Gothard, and I'm going to round it out. Uh, If Bruce Dickinson gets postponed again, I'm going to round it out with Mark Fox of Chakra. Uh, They have a new album out called Snakes and Ladders, another Swiss band, another band that just for some reason North America just didn't wake up to. But uh, again, if you like hard melodic rock, you know, uh, sort of pyromania style, Def Leppard. Um, then, uh, Chakra is for you. So I'll uh, we'll we'll round out that European interview or, or episode with either Bruce or Mark or so. We'll we'll figure out something. But it's going to be three European bands, three European interviews. Anyway, let's get back to Canada and North America. Brian Volmer of Helix. Him and I have a long long standing relationship we have known each other for for many many years um in fact a few years ago about a decade ago maybe a little longer uh he was looking for a new guitarist and i had suggested uh somebody named sean kelly to him who was in crash kelly and eventually now you know plays with learon uh nelly furtado has uh, done the stuff with uh todd howarth and john Regan in four by fate and just, just a, an incredibly talented musician. He he also was part of the uh, band that was in the D. Schneider Christmas show when it went up to Toronto last year or two years ago. Um, and so I had I had introduced him to a Brian Vollmer, and, and since that introduction, um, you know Brian put you know put his trust in me. I said, Hey, this guy's good, and he said, Yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. I've I've heard that before, and I went, No, 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 no. This guy's good. Believe me. Uh, and, uh, they, they, they hit it off and they've written multiple albums together. They have uh, performed multiple shows together and they just get along great. And so, um, there you go. And in for, and in fact, uh, Sean is involved on this new album, get your, get your Y-E-R, get your hands dirty, uh, from Brian Vollmer. So let's just get right into this without further ado, without delay, Great Canuck, unfortunately a toronto maple Leafs fan but i won't hold that against him go haps go here is the one the only brian volmer we are speaking with helix frontman brian volmer he's got a new solo cd out called get your hands dirty or get your hands dirty y-e-r uh brian always always a pleasure to talk to you
3: thanks always nice talking to you too mitch you know, that album was partially, uh, you were partially responsible for that album because you were the one that turned me on to Sean Kelly in the first place.
2: Yeah, well, in fact, we'll, we'll talk about that. Sean Kelly plays guitar on this. He has uh, done a project with the Fraley's Comic Guys called Four by Fate, and I've always loved Sean. And years ago, uh, you were looking for a guitarist, and I suggested Sean, and uh, it's been a, a very productive relationship, in fact. It's been. What, going on 10 years now that, that he's helped write and play and, and done a whole bunch of stuff, right?
3: It's been at least 10 years now, and uh, Sean also co-produced Get Your Hands Dirty. He was instrumental in putting together that album for me, and um, it was a real special ex- experience. Working with Gavin Brown was uh, um, an honor. The guy's got many Junos under his belt. Long track record, not only as a producer, but a drummer. Um and then I had Cheryl Loves on. I've known Cheryl since the mid-'70s. Cheryl's one of the best blues uh, female blues singer in Canada that I know of. Uh, and then, of course, Daryl from Helix on bass guitar and Matt Weidinger on the keyboards. And Matt is uh, an up-and-coming keyboard player. He's played for Lee Aaron and a lot of uh, uh, southern Ontario uh, uh, bands.
2: Yeah, and you've got some other great connect, uh, Canadian connections on there, too. Danko Jones does a does a song and Harry Hess of Harem Scarem uh helped master this album. So there's just a lot of a lot of Canadian on this okay so so let's let's talk about the album first and then we'll sort of go back in the history of, of, of Brian Vollmer and Helix. But um why a solo album at this point? Why not just say, hey, these songs are Helix?
3: Well, first off I wasn't looking to do a solo album. You know Helix is basically me, so um but I'd had discussed in the past with Sean about a doing a all Canadian covers album, because um, if you look at Canadian rock, it began when it began back in I don't know 50s 60s. A lot of Canadian bands were very naive and they signed to Canadian labels because they went, we're going to sign you to a worldwide deal, and the Canadian band would sign the deal not realizing that the Canadian record company didn't have any distribution outside of uh, Canada. So songs like Touch of Magic by uh, James Leroy. Um, there were the other songs like The First Cut is the Deepest became niche hits in Canada, but never made it outside uh, the boundaries of the country. So I think a good song is a good song is a good song. And uh, the the idea initially was to put out... You know, all those songs, because I have a, a knowledge of the history of Canadian rock. I know a lot of songs that maybe people wouldn't normally know. And then that kind of morphed into an idea of doing uh, uh, an album of blues covers, uh, R&B covers, and maybe a couple self-written songs. And uh, I was talking to Sean one day, and he was in the studio with Gavin Brown. I had known Gavin uh, from working with Gavin on the uh, Cover Me Canada show. I don't know if you saw that. Yep, um, I did. And that was with uh, David Clayton Thomas, Alan Frew, I think Atlanta Miles was on that show. And so I knew Gavin Brown, and Gavin was a Helix fan. And um, anyway, I phoned Sharma, and Danny was working with Gavin in the studio. And the next thing I know, I asked Gavin if he'd ever work with me. He said yes. And then I was left scrambling to come up with the money to do a solo album because I thought it was an amazing opportunity. Um, as you know, uh, Gavin is an up and coming, one not up and coming. He's there already. He's one of Canada's top producers. So, uh, for someone from the eighties, like myself to get the opportunity to work with someone of that stature is like to come along every day. And I jumped at the chance, uh, before I even had the money to do the album, because it takes a lot of money to do albums. And so, um, I had a connection out in British Columbia. Uh, a guy named Chuck, uh, uh, I don't even want to pronounce his last name, because you might get it wrong, but Chuck owns uh, one of the biggest pot dispensaries in um, B.C., and I asked Chuck if he wanted to uh, help finance the album, and he was right in there. So all of a sudden, I had the financing, and the next thing was picking the songs, and away we went.
2: And, of course, the, the sound, or the the album sonically, sounds very different to what Helix is doing anyway, right?
3: Well, it's a Rhythm and Blues album. It's not a heavy metal album. But, you know, it's not so strange for me because I've always looked at Helix as being a blues-based metal band anyway. So, not So not so much of a right-hand turn maybe just more towards the blues end of it. Like we're do- I am doing a Wilson Pickett song. Um, the Alex Harvey song, Bus Bar Blues, is a fairly basic, uh, you know, uh, um, three-chord blues song. Yeah.
2: Now, is this something that going down the road, you want to do a- more albums like this, where you sort of reach outside of what Helix does? Or is this sort of like, okay, I've done this now, let me focus back on what Helix is doing.
3: Yeah, I like it. It's an outlet for me because when the band first started back in the 70s, we were like a roving jukebox and wheels. We had to play whatever people wanted to hear in the audience because that was the way you survived back in the buzz. We played everything from the Bay City Rollers to Aerosmith. We we tended towards the heavier stuff because that's what we all personally enjoyed. But, you know, our set was a mishmash of everything that was on the radio. So when eventually we became known as quote unquote a metal act, we really always thought of ourselves as just a heavy, heavy rock band. And, um, Thing, but I don't know. the rest of that label on, so I guess that's okay. Um, and we we kind of developed the sound because unlike when the Beatles came out, where you could have that really versatile sound and now you can go from uh, like the Beatles used to go from Octopus's Garden to then to come together, you know. Total different ends of the musical spectrum. But, uh, you know, I think when we came out in the 80s, there was much less of that. So you had to hone your own sound. And, and Helix did have a sound. And so, you know, I still had those other musical tastes. So I listened to all sorts of music. So when I t- tended to vary away from the, uh, um, the established Helix sound, at least the Helix sound that, that fans identified with, say on uh, Business uh, Doing Pleasure. It turned out to be a huge mistake and fans revolted, you know, like some, in some cases we got a whole new legion of fans, but then other fans were out. Oh, that's not what I signed up for, so you know, it was kind of a conflict for me because I never ever really slotted music in those nice little slots when I wrote. I just used to write songs, and I go, yeah, I like that, and I'd write that, you know, but um so. Getting back to your original question, yeah, this is an outlet for me and and not only that it allows me to showcase my voice. I go through many different styles on uh this particular disc, everything from um you know the when the bidders got the better of view, which is almost like uh Leonard Cohen meets the doors to uh the um rockwell outlaws by Rose tattoo so.
2: You know, you mentioned that in the early days of the band, you were a roving jukebox, and there was a lot of survival. There, There is one thing that I want to talk to you about, because you've, you've spoken about it in the media in the past. Uh, getting out there and doing live shows in Canada in terms of um, fees and taxes, it, it, you've said that it's killing live entertainment. Um Talk to me about the difficulties in being a touring act these days, especially uh, in Canada.
3: Well, you've, <laughs> you've brought up a whole range of things up. But right. to give an example, one of my vocal students owns a club in Toronto. He employs 22 people. And he told me the other day, uh, I don't know if this is true, but this is what he told me. He said, Ontario is the most expensive place in the world to have a bar, <laughs> yeah. you know, which kills entertainment. On one hand, you have the government giving out uh, uh, money hilly-nilly, $60 million, I think it was, to the arts, supposedly in Ontario. Uh, and I always think it goes to A, people that can't sell their music, B, people that are too lazy to sell their music, or C, people that can sell their music, but they go, oh, the government's giving me money, I might as well take it. It falls into those three categories. What other categories are there? I know. So, you know. Whenever you give, whenever you give out money, though, you have to take it from somewhere. On the other hand, the last time uh, um, when the government came in and carried the last time around, uh, they raised—I um, think they doubled the uh, aviation fuel tax. Small thing, but you know, once again, who does that hurt? That hurts bands like Honeymoon Sweet, Liare, and uh, bands that are actually out there working and doing this for a living. Yeah, um, uh, if you take the HST, like say you're a band making uh, $5,000 a night in Ontario, figure that out. $5,000, you're paying HST of 113 times 5. So that's what the promoter has to pay on top of that. And then on top of rooms and on top of advertising. And you can see where oh, you almost got to charge 100 bucks a ticket by the time you're done to make a profit. The other thing I think is to- sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say because
2: a lot of fans complain about different things. You know, they'll say, "Well, you know, bands from England aren't coming here. You know, Diamond Head or or Thunder, they can't come here, and you're not going to there, and and American bands aren't, and and nobody ever seems to understand that there's this whole behind the scenes mechanism that's that's sort of set up to fail. I mean, it, it's sort of set up to make it impossible. I mean. For a band to get from, like you, to get from middle of Ontario over to Ottawa, there's transportation costs, there's fuel costs, and then you get to the bar and they say, well, we're going to give you 1200 bucks, and you go, why am I going to show up tonight? Um, so, so yes, yeah, so it is very difficult to to stay on the road, and... The other thing that I find is killing the live music scene is the insistence of bars to take bands like yourself and have you start at 1130 at night, which to me just doesn't make any sense. Um, Do you have any any issues with, with late start times?
3: Oh, I've had an issue with that for years, but the bar owner is in a precarious position. He has to make money off of A, the liquor sales, or B, the door. He, uh, when he's in competition with casinos, festivals, things like that, if you look at casinos, casinos are only interesting in people in the bar so they go gamble. That's where they make all the money. Uh, they care less about the bar now, so they have an extra stream of revenue that the bar can't even consider. So unlike casino, which has early shows and, then lost, and their main objective is to get people out on the gambling floors, right, the main objective in a bar is to keep people there as long as possible so they can drink. Yeah. And that's why one's doomed to fail here, and one is going to survive. Yeah, but uh, but I also
2: think if you look at, at some of the older heritage acts or, or classic rock acts, the crowd is, you know, 40, 45, 50 They have jobs in the morning. They have babysitters. Instead of staying up all night till midnight to buy three extra beers, they're just not going to show up to the venue at all, and so you can't sell. Well,
3: not only that, they don't want to go to a lot of these venues because they're dark, dingy places with bad sight lines and bad PAs and bad lights. That's another advantage of casinos. When we play, say, Edmonton at the Century Casino or the Deerfoot in in Calgary, you're looking at a nice, soft-seat club. Nice sight lines. You know you're going to have good sound. You can take the wife out to the the restaurant or the casino for supper before the gig. After the gig, you can sit around, have a a coffee in the restaurant at the casino or go do some gambling. Like a a totally different situation. It's geared towards a middle-aged audience. Bars are not geared towards that nowadays and and you know uh versus back in the 80s where they had loosey-goosey drinking and driving laws and you know um uh, uh there was a sexual revolution going on <laughs> to an extent and yeah, uh, you don't have those things now you got things called aids and uh and you have um you know crackdown and drinking and driving like i said plus oh. booze is expensive you know you go to a bar and you have uh, five or six beers, you just
2: spend a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, you're out like seventy bucks. Um, I, I want to go back to this CBS memorandum that you posted on your Facebook and, and and sort of set the scene. Um, you posted this rejection letter from 1981, where. Uh, A a certain person named Don DeVito said that the material is weak, the performance is ordinary, and this group needs blah, 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 much stronger material and performance to be competitive in the market. And then after that, in 83, No Rest for the Wicked, Walking the Razor's Edge in 84, Long Way to Heaven in 85, Wild in the Streets in 87. You hit him back with sort of four albums that are classic metal albums worldwide, but certainly iconic records uh, in Canada. When you get letters like that early in your career, do you look at that as motivation to prove them wrong? Or was that so devastating that you sort of crawled in a hole for two years and said, fuck, what are we going to do? And then, okay, No Rest for the Wicked comes out. How, how how did you look at those kind of letters? and 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 then just talk to me about that spate of four albums that were just... One sort of better than the next, right
3: well, and we looked at them as motivation we didn't let it uh, deter us in the least back then we were, we had released two independent albums on our own, as you know, breaking loose and white lace and black leather. We sold those between sets. I think we sold fifteen thousand copies that's incredible when you think about it, yep, uh, and that, to a large part helped get our deal with capital e m i um Looking back at that letter, you know, he was probably pretty accurate in what he said. He really didn't work at songwriters then. Um, But it always made me laugh the way he signed his name because it looked like he was throwing back his head of hair. As he he said it, that was the most amusing thing about that letter. Uh, And the fact that, you know, he was brutal with his response. like He was actually upset that we would even have the audacity to bring him material, right? Like, how do we know what he he thinks is good and bad? That's besides the point. But it motivated us, and it made us stronger, and it also made us go examine why he would say something like that. We used to take our music, and this was an idea that uh, our manager, William Sype, got us to do, and and he'd say, okay, well, if you want to be on the radio, uh, take your song and inject it between two songs on the radio, see if it fits. And we'd find that, no, it didn't fit. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we started writing stuff like Check Out the Love that was still didn't really fit in Canadian radio, but it fit better than the other stuff we were writing. And I think it, it, it just sharpened our focus is what it did.
2: Yeah, it really did. Because you, cause you look at the albums that came out after, uh, absolutely phenomenal. Now, l- let me focus here on Long Way to Heaven. It came out in November of 1985, so we're looking at what 32 years 32nd anniversary at this point um take me back to that album deep cuts the knife the kids are all shaking um what does that album mean to you and sort of the entire sort of helix discography
3: well at the time we actually felt it was a bit of a failure to tell you the truth after walking the razor's edge and there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the band i think it came from the record coming to our manager and then our mani- manager leaned on us and um we weren't the most prolific bunch in the world. And uh, I know back then to all of us, writing was this kind of mysterious type of thing. We'd sit around and and hope for something to fall out of the sky. Um, And uh, I think that when we went, went to write it, it it was just a crucial time in the band. And because of the pressure, we felt we hadn't done well, but uh, from the mail we've gotten uh, in years since we realized that we did really did write a pretty good album.
2: Uh, you have also said, uh, well, actually on my Facebook, that your all-time favorite album from from Helix, I guess, is No Rest for the Wicked. Um,
3: That's true. It was a special time for the band. We wrote that uh, album in literally a month and a half uh, at the tail end of our last Western uh, Western Canadian tour through the Butters, And... Um, everything we were writing was getting rejected by John Moot and Bill and, uh on the way out. And then suddenly we just started to kick into the, these songs that were just catching. The first one was check out the love. We actually wrote it down in uh, Brooklyn uh, when we played down there in um, not Brooklyn in the uh, story in the Bronx is where we wrote that song. And when we wrote that song, we knew, we had kind of stumbled on our sound. That's what we wanted to sound like. And so um, it's kind of set a pattern uh, after that, when we were writing songs, that was the sound we were going for. And because Paul Hackman was a guy that where the songs uh, would start. And then I'd add the lyrics and the melody and stuff. Uh, you know, a large part of it came from Paul.
2: Yeah, it really did. Um, uh, i 'm trying to move along here to to all these different topics there's so much to cover with you and and, we, and our time is so so limited um give me an r your autobiography that came out back in two thousand and five It is one of the best biographies yep. I have ever read in terms of rock biographies because you really get a sense of this is a band that 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 you know worked it down to the bone, and you can you can feel the struggle, you can feel the pain, but then you also get the payoff of the those those albums and the success in the '80s. Um, talk to me about writing that book and putting that story together. And since it has been you know 12 years now, is there a follow up, or you know will you reissue it with a few extra chapters? Will you write a second one? Um, have you considered a movie, uh, making a movie
3: out of it? Well, first off, the idea for the book came about because I felt, I always go over my gut feel and everything I do, and I felt at that time in the band's history that we were coming to a certain closure of that part in our history. It was it was just me, and I was going through uh, um, all these different musicians, and so I felt this urge to write a book, and uh, it took me actually a couple of years, and I'd usually sit around late at night and tap away in the computer, and I just started... Uh, I just write stuff down and I wouldn't think about it too much. And, um, and eventually I got the book written. I just you know, put one foot in front of the other and just kept going till it was done. Um, whenever you do any of these projects, where, whether it be the first time you do a CD, CD or the first time you do a vinyl album or whatever, uh, the hardest part is going through the process once. And Once you go through it once, then it's not so hard. But that first time was difficult. I didn't know what I was doing, and um, and luckily I got to the end, and except for a few spelling mistakes, I didn't do too bad.
2: No, you didn't do bad at all. Was it cathartic in a sense to to, to sort of get all, because you said you were coming to sort of a close in the band's chapters, was it nice to sort of get all that stuff off your chest and out there and say, okay, now in 2006, helix you know 2.0 moves on and we can sort of focus on the future or was the book just like eh, it's out and so what
4: no it, it was a catharsis
3: uh, you know I, I looked at all the stuff we did and um, i started to think differently about it and just differently about some of the people involved too um, helix was always a family type of atmosphere. We cared about each other. We hung around with each other. We discussed each other's personal lives. We didn't just let things slide by, you know, and ignore, you know, somebody was going off the beaten track. And we cared about each other. And uh, that was a big difference in the band. And I think uh, that shows in the book quite a bit too. Kenny who worked for the band. He went to work for Melissa Atheridge and Live and uh, eventually Jim Irce of the Colts. And he told me he'd never... Then another band after Helix would have that same vibe to it um, that we had. So it, it was important for me to write the book. And uh, now that I wrote it, um, I don't know, there's lots to write a second book. I just uh, have so many other projects lined up before I get to there. So yeah, no. I don't know. We'll see you maybe down the line.
2: And I do want to talk about those. Uh, just before that, as we are approaching uh, Christmas and Christmas season, uh 2008, you put out A Heavy Mental Christmas, the Helix Christmas album. And on the surface, you look at that and you go, well, that's, that's silly, but it is so well done. It is such a great album, such fun. Um, talk to me about putting that album together and just sort of having this unique album that every year will just keep coming back and people can just keep going back to it and, and listening to it
3: once again, the spark for that idea was you. It was a conversation we had in that cafe in the middle of the street. I don't remember this way back when. And we were talking about Twisted Sisters' Christmas album. And uh, that's when I decided that's what I want to do. I'm a Christmas nut to begin with. I don't do anything that's like just for money or just because I think it'll sell. I actually love Christmas. And Linda and I, we used to do a Planet Helix here to the nines every Christmas, have a great big Christmas party, and that was a big deal for us. Um, the album sounded so good, I think, because of Gord Breyer, who was heavily involved with that record, and he took those songs, and um, with the help of Steve George Kapopoulos, who played guitar on it, they were able to take those traditional songs, a lot of them, and make them into uh, rock and roll songs. And uh, I always used to Listen, to those Christmas albums when I grew up as a kid, whether it be Bing Crosby but, uh, or other people like that as I grew up. and But, uh, you know, James Brown at Christmas albums, Alvin said uh, Christmas albums for some reason, fans out days think they're too cool to have a Christmas album. But I don't know. I've, I've never been. I've always gone with my gut rather than what I thought was cool.
2: And it turned out great. And I remember that conversation. We were sitting on a street in Montreal called Prince Arthur. Uh, Prince Arthur as they say up here and uh, having that conversation okay, I
3: would have never remembered
2: that so, <laughs> I remember it and and yeah we were talking about that Twisted Sister album because at the time that was sort of the first new recording from Twisted Sister in like 20 years and instead of doing like a heavy metal album they did this Christmas album and yet it went bonkers on radio and on video and, and everybody was playing it and it was like what? How did that happen? Um Bastard of the Blues is the, as far as I can remember, the last album that you released back in 2014. Where are we in terms of new Helix music?
3: Well, actually, we had an album after that called Rocket Science, which oh, was a first right. album album That's right. That's right. with about that uh, one. two uh, uh, um, new tracks on it. And then after that I decided that I was just going to release one or two tracks at a time and focus on them rather than put out a whole album. because I just felt that, you know, you put so much time and effort into it and people really really only listen to the first one or two tracks and then they're on to the next CD. So I thought rather than do that, I would focus on doing a couple tracks, release them on YouTube, Facebook, work them on radio, whatever. And uh when I got enough then put out a you know, a best of album, a couple of new tracks, something like that.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good way to do it. And uh I will also mention the Smash Hits Unplugged album from a few years back. Uh that one also, if you're a, if you're a fan of acoustic albums, it's a it's a great one. Um market wise though you said that you'd rather not focus on doing a full album, but just a couple of singles here and there. Is that sort of where we've, we've come into the sort of the state of rock these days where it's just not worth the time and effort to put together 10 new songs. It, it's, it really is sort of a singles market now.
3: Well, it's definitely a singles market, uh, but you know, I love writing songs. Uh, the reason I do is I don't want to waste the songs. Uh, and, The bottom line is you have to make money to keep putting out music. And so in Helix, I watch where every nickel goes. So if I think there's a better way to do it, that's the way I go. Just for the survival of the band, more so than, you know, I mean, uh, money has to do with the survival of the band. So that's why I went that route uh with helix uh you take this year we, we put out uh, the devil's having a party tonight and the tequila song uh they're on the vinyl album and it got released uh digitally so maybe next year maybe i'll do a best of with uh, even jesus on or something put it on vinyl yeah. i don't know
2: and i'm hoping uh, I'm, I'm hoping I, for our second say, christmas I, I, album I, I,
3: I, I, <laughs> that's what i'm hoping well, for. i think i'm gonna put the christmas album on in vinyl i'd like to do that with the uh see the thing about the christmas album is we have this great christmas album that did very well for us and then we have all i want for christmas is the leaf to win the cup which i think is a great christmas song for leaf fans and there it's not on that album so uh if we put the vinyl album out for sure i'm going to put that song over on the album you know, I even do a a, a, a Habs version of that song. All I want for Christmas is the Habs to win the cup.
2: Well, yeah. Or, or, or as a Leafs fan, <laughs> as a Leafs fan, the song is is probably all I want for Christmas is for Habs fans to stop talking about the past and the twenty four Cup because <laughs> that's that's what. But, but yeah, you know. Uh, Quickly on hockey, because it's, it's a Canadian conversation. I, I really think that, that your Toronto Maple Leafs, for the first time since 1967, have a team that actually could win a cup, if not this year, next year. So it's, it's been 50 years of, of hoping, but I think we, we're, we're at that point where you've assembled a team that is capable. So
3: well you know the very first year I ever started cheering for the Leafs when I was a kid was 1967 that was the last time they won it. I could almost name everybody on the bloody team.
2: So what you're saying is that 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 it's the curse of Brian Volmer that's keeping them from winning the cup.
3: Well, you never know maybe.
2: <laughs> there you go. But I tell
3: you we've been through some heartbreak over the years.
2: Oh yeah. Well, I I wouldn't know as a Hab fan. Since then, we've won what eight or nine cups, so it's it's been hard to yeah, keep yeah. track. <laughs> um, planethelix.com for all your Helix needs. Uh, I would recommend that you head over there and check out uh, the Unplugged album, the the uh, Get Your Hands Dirty, and and just pretty much everything, folks. Just just check out Helix. I know that some folks here are listening in the states and other parts of the world, and and Helix. Uh, may have been forgotten, but it, it is a great Canadian band, right up there with your rushes and your triumphs and your honeymoon suites. It very, very much worth uh, your time and effort to track down and check out. There you go,
3: Brian. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for the uh, play there, Mitch. Yeah, I've you know, worked very hard on the website over the last couple of years. We're always adding videos, pictures, updating stuff. We have a, a, a website now that's based on a template, whereas before I had to go to my webmaster and he had to change. So it took weeks to change stuff around. Uh, now I do a lot of it myself. I go on every morning and you know, I work from about 7 o'clock to noon, usually just uh, either putting a post up on Facebook and attaching that to my vlog on the website. But um uh, we're going to put a button on it in the, on the homepage and we're going to have people sign up for a, a newsletter and that way we can uh, send out the vlogs and all the newest uh, info on the band. I, I was just saying to the other day, you mentioned the heliograph and, um, you know, social networking kind of come full circle. We started off sending out that net, little newsletter to fans and we basically do the same thing nowadays, only we, um, you know, communicate through Facebook, Twitter, things like that.
2: That's sort of the way to do it and uh, uh, I was just going to quickly mention for folks who, who haven't had a chance to get the uh, book, Give Me an R, it is for sale on the website. Uh, there's some great looking t-shirts there. There's a Fire Skull t-shirt. that's absolutely fantastic looking. Uh, folks, check out planethelix.com and uh, Brian... Thank you.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Mitch.
2: Always a pleasure. And uh, we will definitely do a, a part two. And uh, just keep the good music coming. And get get your hands dirty, folks. Go get that album as well.
3: <laughs> Thanks a lot. Catch you in the flip side. Don't be square see you around. Whoosh.
2: Whoosh. Certainly hope you enjoyed my uh, interview with Helix's Ryan Vollmer. Get Your Hands Dirty is the new album. And uh, let us finish today's episode with rehab. Bob Forrest. Um, You know, drugs and alcohol have been a theme in rock music for years and years and years and I think a lot of us have had somebody in our lives along the way that has been affected by uh, drugs and alcohol, whether it's opioids or whether it's uh, just booze or it's just and um, you know, sometimes we don't know how to help, sometimes we do know how to help, but a lot of times we just don't have that discussion. We don't get out there, and so I just thought, you know, th- th- there's been a lot of tragedies in in the rock world over the years. So let's, let's just get Bob on and just talk about uh, hope and awareness. And you know, if you're if you're out there right now struggling, Bob is listening. We, uh, you know, you can go over to the Aloe House and you can listen to the, for the uh, the websites and all that, and just reach out to Bob. Uh, he will help. Um, And so, you know, uh, here we go. Uh, From, or formerly from Celebrity Rehab, now the Allo Recovery House, it is Rehab Bob Forrest. We are speaking with Bob Forrest, otherwise known as Rehab Bob, of course. He is at the Allo House Recovery Centers, and he does a wonderful, wonderful podcast with Dr. Drew called This Life. And of course, previously he was on Celebrity Rehab. A pleasure to speak with you, Bob.
4: That is the story of my life in a twenty second soundbite.
2: <laughs> I know. Because I am a I'm a professional that way. No, but but no you are
4: a professional.
2: Yes. But but talk to me about because you know, we all have known you and have followed you on celebrity rehab. You have now moved on from that and you've got the Aloe House Recovery Centers. Um and of course you're a musician. So so talk to me about how you yeah, got in well, uh, in
4: the beginning.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you had uh, uh, Thelonious Monster, right?
4: Yep. And, that was uh, the name. And, after Monk. Yeah,
2: and uh, Bicycle Thief, if I'm not mistaken.
4: Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the one I'm most proud of. I mean, Thelonious Monster, the 80s, you know, we used to tour Canada a lot with, you know, it's sad the passing of, but, but with a lot of different bands from up there. And, and, Canada was always so welcoming and lovely to go to, you know, and, um, and it's just, it's a far, it's a gone era, that eighties music where everyone was kind of united and, and new music or alternative music or left of the dial music, whatever you want to call it. We were just all a huge army. And, you know, so Tony so sponsor was a part of that.
2: Yeah, and a great part of it, and and of course, uh, one of the reasons I, I know all this stuff is because I recently, well, like in April, interviewed Josh Klinghoffer, who uh, is in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he was, of course, with you in Bicycle Thief, and. We had also talked about John Frusciante, if I said that correctly, who had
4: Furschante. Yeah, yeah, See, yeah,
2: see my yeah. my Canadian accent gave me away there. Uh, but yeah, he also yeah, had yeah. he had also uh, tried out for Thelonious Monster and all that stuff. So there, there was a whole Red Hot Chili Peppers family thing going on. Um, yeah. So so now that we got the the music here out of the way like, for a second, l- let's talk about uh, becoming a Uh, what would be the word for it? Not a, not a rehab specialist, but what's, what's the word I'm looking for? A a
4: counselor? Well, yeah, a counselor. I'm a licensed, I'm a certified in California counselor for chemical dependency and alcoholism or whatever. There's other terms for it like addiction specialist. And, but I mean, I really always, it started out with music. I was a musician and I was, and I got into music because it was fun and you could drink and take drugs and and play music and all my friends did it. And then I, you know, for better, or for worse the, I had some success and then I had the money and my addiction had gotten so much more ahead of everybody else's. I think me and Anthony Kiedis were like out ahead of everybody else. And so once we got money, it was just crazy and it's lucky we survived. And, um, And, and I ended up, went to, you know, became homeless, went to jail, you know, went to 20 rehab centers and somehow I landed on my feet sober and, and I got sober in 1996 and I just started helping other musician friends of mine get off the drugs like John Fashante and, um, and Martine from Porno for Pyros and just different musician friends of mine were in the same trouble I had been in just coming along a few years later. And I just started helping them get sober and they like lived at my house and it just became a thing where I just started trying to help my friends get off the of drugs. And and inevitably it led to the formation of this thing called music cares or map. I, I don't know if you're familiar with down here in the United States, treatment costs money. Medical treatment costs money. It's not right. this wonderful and free like, and, and, and a and a and a and a right like it is in Canada, but it actually costs money. So more and more of my friends have become drug. We're, we're hitting bottom and dying, you know, being and having and homeless and and me by this time, me Anthony. Ketus, um John, we're all trying to help our friends get off drugs and it, it cost so much at first, just, you know, we would just pay for it. But then, you know, we just, it was a mass of people. It was like everybody we grew up with. So there was this organization called map the musician's assistance program. So we got involved with them to, because they negotiated how to get people treatment for much lower prices. And, and they, had this non-profit program, and we just started supporting that. And then I started working there because I didn't have you know, a career in music much anymore. So it just all took on a life of its own, and I've been doing it for 20 years or something.
2: Wow, that's incredible. Um, and, I, I want to ask you this because years ago I interviewed Dave Mustaine of Megadeth, who of course is in yeah, recovery. Yeah. And he said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, and these are not word for word, but he said something along the line that you are never an ex-drug at it. You are always uh, fighting it and holding it off. Is that something that you see in your own personal life where, I mean, can you get it out of your system altogether and just say, I'm never touching it again? Or is it always sort of a struggle of... What if I I slip up? What if I just have that one drink? What yeah, if I,
4: don't, I... I don't think we all I don't think we all live in this worry that that or this or this battle. I just know that that I'll just tell you something that most non addicts won't understand. I know what drugs do to me, how how they comfort me, how they make everything you know, make pain go away, make emotional, psychic pain go away, how they make the sun shining seem better, how it makes the beach boys sound better. So whenever there's some substance or some experience you can have, that's going to enhance everything and protect you from anything. um, It's, it's always something you have to be on guard against. Most people don't know that, so they don't have to worry about that. You you understand what I'm saying? It's like a Pandora's box that I opened, and now I know how great it is. Right. Right? And so I closed the box because it was too scary and it got too crazy, Um, but I know it's inside that box, and it's very evocative, and it's very, you know, seducing, and it's and and the memories of it are always there that, you know, one speedball or one, you know, some snorting some heroin is just the greatest thing I've ever experienced. And I haven't done it for 22 years, but I could do it. It would take a lot to get me to do it because I'm so in this new life that I have, but you never forget the memories of what it was. You ever get a bunch of you, get Dave, me and Dave Mustang together and we start romanticizing drug stories. It's, it's visceral. It's, it changes your blood pressure. It changes your brain chemistry, just thinking about it. So it's something that I don't really think you shake. Yeah. You see it? But I- it's something you don't have to worry about. I don't worry about it
2: and and it's it's something that i can't relate to cuz i i've never actually taken any drugs in my life even as a as a teenager
4: oh my god you're the anomaly not us <laughs> no i no and, and
2: i agree with that i mean I, I you know i i know kids all all day long but but i always had this incredible fear and it was it, it was a multitude of fears it was a fear of what if i try this what? How? How would I afford it? What if I like it? What if I kill myself? What? And and so all these worries sort of backed me out of it. <laughs> so I never got it prevented around.
4: Prevented you from doing it? Yeah. See, I, I worried myself sick about they'll it. They'll Try it anyways. I think a lot of people have those worries and try it anyways. Do you know that you're <laughs> you're the only the third person I've ever met in my life that have never done anything? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, listen. You've, I, never, you've never even smoked a hit off a joint? No, not even. I, I have, have been high in beer? the sense that... You're Canadian. Have you drank a beer?
2: I've never liked beer. I've always thought the smell was was really disgusting. <laughs> <Discussing>. <laughs> but, but you know, listen, in 2000... You were in
4: rarefied air. You know who, who you were in rarefied air with? Rick Rubin and Ian Mackay. the Dish- only two and, people I and, know who smoked or drank. No,
2: but, you know, in... Um... Huh? N.D. Schneider of Twisted Sister, but no, in um, and Gene Simmons. See, we're good company. No, but in 2004, I had a serious back Gene injury. Simmons
4: is a sex addict, though, isn't he? Yes. Well,
2: <laughs> apparently, no. But but listen, in 2004, like I like I was saying, I, I had a serious back injury, and they gave me Percocet, and they gave me uh, Dilaudid, and they gave, and I mean, I spent nights seeing purple elephants running across the. So so I haven't had any sort of. Uh, Illegal drugs, but I certainly had some uh, that were prescribed by doctors. And uh, let me tell you, those were very peculiar. <laughs> Boy, yeah, I, I got myself into uh, I got myself into not uh, not rehab for uh, for drugs, but into uh, physical therapy, so I could get my back problem fixed out real quick because that was way too trippy for me. Um, but uh, let me let me talk about. Uh, recovery because you did celebrity rehab and then you have the aloe house recovery center so uh, let me just quickly mm-hmm. start with celebrity rehab and then we'll we'll go in depth on aloe house but for, you know from my own background and my own knowledge having studied uh, in psychology and stuff you know recovery should always sort of be private and personal and and wasn't sort of celebrity rehab the antithesis of Proper recovery.
4: <laughs> yeah, it it's it. You know, it was a it was an idea that I had. So you know, Canadian culture and American culture, though we're sister and brother, we live right next door to each other, are so different. And one of the things that was happening down here was people were just destroying these little kids who had mental health issues and and addiction. I believe that America is going through something the last 10 or 15 years where we're like the Aztecs. We want, we want blood. We want to cut their hearts out and hold it up to the gods of, of now it's Harvey Weinstein right now. It'll be somebody else next week, but about, about eight, nine, 10 years ago, whenever it was that we started slowly rehab, it was Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears and you know, they were the punchline of every joke every night on late night television. And they were little kids. They were like 19 and 21 years old. And I kept thinking, like, if I was the punchline on Jay Leno every night on The Tonight Show, or and everybody was making fun of me, I would have killed myself. How did these girls even fucking make it through the next day? And I was so pissed. I just thought it was such a fucked up thing for Jay Leno and David Letterman and these easy target, lame jokes night after night about these two little girls who obviously are are battling with mental health issues and and alcoholism and drug dependency issues. And they're just the punchlines of jokes. That's what America's become. And so I just got pissed and I went into Drew's office one morning and I just said, you know what? we should do a TV show about addiction and, and show America how human the experience is and how courageous drug addicts are to kind of overcome this and hear the horror stories of what their dads did to them when they were little kids and hear what went on because America is so fucking stupid. It has to see things on television or it doesn't believe it. Now we have a president who's so fucking stupid if he doesn't see it on television, he doesn't believe it. So, so Drew said, you're kidding. And I was like, no, we should do a TV show called rehab and just have and just put cameras in here. And, and I know it's an, I know it's going to be controversial. And I know a lot of therapists won't like it. And I know we'll get it criticized a lot, but America needs to see how, how brave and how difficult and how courageous drug addicts are and sexually abused survivors are and, and mentally ill people are to try to overcome their problems. And he said, all right, I'll try to get some together. (laughs) So that was the intention for to humanize addicts and mentally ill people to humanize trauma. To put it, instead of having it be this ridiculed joke, and I think we did that, but was it good for the patients? Is what I, I guess everybody wants to ask. I, I don't know if it was good for some patients. I don't think it was good for other patients. Um, but you know, in the end, the the public good I think it did for addicts is is really something, especially down here. I mean, I have people tell me all the time they they really they got inspired to be sober by watching Celebrity Rehab, and, and so my theory was right. I mean, I could need to see addiction on television, but, you know, and you didn't know who was emotionally resilient enough to go through the process of being on Celebrity Rehab and who wasn't. You know well, what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, and and I do agree that there was a greater good because for a lot of people who might have been struggling, you know, in in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, who didn't have access or didn't know or 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 were scared, they saw it they were they,
4: ashamed. They were and, ashamed. Right. And if, they said, "Okay, if let me Lindsay go do." If, if Lindsay Lohan's getting crucified for being co- or for snorting cocaine, what is some 20-year-old girl in Des Moines, Iowa feeling? Right, exactly. shame, secrecy, possible you know, horrible outcomes. And so that was the climate of which I got the idea to do the TV show. We have to show addicts on television. I know it's very controversial. I know people have very, various opinions. Now I can tell you, Doc Gooden is one of my, he's become a friend over the years. He says there's only, there's no way that he would ever listen to any, any except for being on celebrity rehab and we've been friends and been working it out for years and years and he's doing well now he's had some ups and downs but but so there are certain people that'll claim that celebrity rehab really was profoundly positive for them like doc Gooden.
2: well but and and i agree
4: will say it wasn't good i felt exploited or whatever
2: right and and what I saw from from my perspective also is that it it rendered that lifestyle very unsexy. If that it, 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 you know, excuse the term. That's what my, we're
4: trying to do,
2: right? And 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 I think that's important because everybody says, "Oh, look at Lindsay Lohan. Look at the, oh, they're they're rich millionaires and they're running around and blah blah blah." And it's party, 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 and but nobody ever shows you the other side of that party, where there's the throwing downs
4: up and, in a bucket. <laughs>
2: yeah, and so so. I and perhaps the word is 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 improper but to 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 render it unsexy that lifestyle I think was very important. Um let let's move on here over to Aloe House Recovery Centers. Talk to me about yeah. that because you we're not doing the TV show we're, we're we're how is your center different than other centers because there seems to be sort of a rehab center on every street corner now. Um, yeah,
4: there
2: really is. Yeah, so talk to me about so that.
4: Well, I'd worked, I'd worked in treatment forever, and I, I kind of, you know, I was trained and, and you kind of got brainwashed into a certain theory of what how treatment should be, and then over the years I started realizing, you know, the most successful recoveries I see have nothing to do with all the emotional brutality that treatment is that. That there's something else going on when it succeeds, right? I used to run this aftercare group, and it and it you know it it swelled to like sixty, seventy people every Tuesday night would come and and hang out, and those were the ones coming out of our rehab center that succeeded. And then I started thinking, well, they all have this kind of you know attachment and relationship to me. And then they also have this attachment and relationship with each other. It became, it became like a community of people who were serious about staying sober out of the rehab center that I ran. And it was the funnest night of the week. It was on Tuesday nights. It went about two and a half hours. Everybody shared, everybody had fun. You checked in, whether you're high, whether you're low, whether you relapsed, or whether you uh, have stayed clean, whether things are going great or things are going awful. And it just became this magical thing that literally had the highest success rate of any group of drug addicts I'd ever seen. And I I kind of talked with Dr. Drew and I was studying it. And like, what it really is, is attachment and community. I wasn't being a drug counselor. I was just being, you know, kind of the ringleader, the ringmaster of this Tuesday night crazy group of drug addicts. And so I thought, how do I recreate Tuesday night aftercare in a rehab center. And what you had, what I had to look at is there are too many rules in a rehab center. You got to go to bed this time. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to, you know, and there's a chain of command that's so disciplined and there's a pyramid of, of authority in the rehab center with me sitting on the top or, and the, the team management team below. And then the text below that, And I thought, this is all fucked up. This is not what Tuesday night aftercare was. So what we're going to do is, and I told Evan and Jared, my partners, we're going to have a rehab center where all employees are equal on a pancake. Now, of course, there's people that no more have more job responsibility, but everyone is equal. No one is to be condescended to. Nobody is to be treated lesser than. So we're going to start with the staff, and it's going to be a pancake, as much of a pancake as we can, where everyone's equal, from techs, which are the lowest um, rung on the totem on on the ladder, to the program director. We're all going to run groups. We're all going to kind of be helpful. We're all going to drive clients. We're all going to just do this collaborative, cooperative, as as close to flat as a pancake. Uh, structure on the on the rehab side and then we're going to transfer that over to the clients that all clients are equal all clients have roommates all clients are the same all clients are to be treated with love and respect and not condescended to or or, and and it just worked and it and i just started calling it an attachment theory treatment program where really what we're doing is sharing and being open and being cool. So that became the staff mantra. They were like, there's only one rule. Bob has only one rule. Be cool, right? It comes from music. Like, just be cool, dude. <laughs> and everybody knows what cool is. See, people with love and respect. Let me don't ask don't you. yell at people. Don't be sarcastic at people. Don't act like you know more than people just be loving of loving service to people. And that, and what was amazing is that the staff were doing it with each other. The clients could recognize that, but there was no, there, it was just, it's a really strange. It's a once in a while. I was there last night when this guy that was in there, his client said, there is no way of even describing this, Bob. And I was like, yeah, there is. We're all in this fucking thing together doesn't, you know, then the staff and the clients and we're just all trying to help addicts get to a safer place in life and with gain more insight. And we're trying to get to a safer place in life and trying to gain more insight.
2: Um, I just want to quickly, that's, that's allo. Yeah. And I quickly want to plug the website. It's com. So A-L-O recovery.com. Um, if somebody is in Des Moines, Iowa, and they're listening to this and they want to reach out to you, uh, you know, and maybe they don't have all the financial means necessary. Is there something that you can do for them? Can they call you and, and get some advice? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
4: We always we – so I have that Rehab Bob website. And I get I get every phone call, every email that comes comes to my phone, and I respond to everyone. It might take a while. But – I respond, I try to direct people wherever i you know, I'm pretty, pretty much know the, the insurance racket, the recovery racket, and all across the United States. And I also can give kind of constructive advice. I mean, I just went and and met with my cousin's son yesterday. What is a cousin's son? Is it a second cousin?
2: Cousin's son? Uh. Yeah. Would that be a, a, a second? Do you call that
4: a second cousin? I don't even know what to call it. Second a nephew? Strange, really. I have no idea. Is it a second nephew? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Anyways, I went and met with them, and I the kid's high-functioning, 30 years old, and I'm like, you know, I don't think you need to go to rehab. We can figure this out a certain other way. And so I'm good at being open-minded and helping people where they are with the situation that they're in, and whether it's the economics of it or, or the the kind of willingness of it of the their situation and just be helpful you
2: which know is what I mean? yeah which is very important and and we'll we'll plug also the uh rehab com and the facebook uh which is where is it here i have it in front of me it's uh oops i don't have it in front of me anymore it is uh facebook.com forward slash rehab bob um bob great pleasure by the way um
4: Great to talk to you, man.
2: Yeah, and and like, can I just get a a, a quick uh, a quick quote or or a message about the the podcast with Doctor Drew? This life, sort of, what can listeners who tune into that uh, hear and expect as as sort of show? Well, content? I've
4: always tried. To, you know, I'm I'm I wanted people to see the other side of Drew, really. That that we, you know, he's a human being, and we sit around and talk about you know sports and and our kids and whatever and so the idea was that drew and i would talk about addiction and talk about things going on in society and stuff but also talk about life that our lives and our friends lives and our children's lives and so that's why it's called this life it's just it's just our life and you know we happen to be in the field of mental health and addiction but you know to just kind of dehumanize it all he's talked about his own childhood on this life it's like pretty amazing stuff so if you can check it out you know, i'm sure there's you know you go on podcasts wherever it is and listen to uh That's us lame. talk about life
2: well hey and uh, maybe someday i can be a guest on that show. i love talking about life i'm a great life person but yeah. uh okay, absolutely- life
4: are you a life lover Life lover,
2: yeah, Uh, you know, hey, that's what that's what the whole you know chasing the rock and roll stuff down. It's just you know having some fun. Uh, Absolute pleasure, Bob. I could go on for forever and ever and ever and
4: uh, yeah. Thank you. Keep on keeping on. Thank you, Bob. Have a good day. Bye bye.
0: Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share.
2: President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead 43 missing in southern
1: california after tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides santa barbara county sheriff bill brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can
2: do their jobs it is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue
3: public works other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search
2: and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair, but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.